This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. It's not every day that I have a top presidential candidate on the podcast, particularly one who has won their nomination of their major political party. So you've all heard of the Democrats. You've all heard of the Republicans. But the third most popular party in the United States, and they're on the ballot in all 50 states, and in 2016, they even got 5 million votes, over 3% of the vote, is the Libertarian Party. And Dr. Joe Jorgensen, she was the VP nominee in 1996, and now she's the presidential nominee in 2020. I had a lot of questions, really. I think, you know, some people say, oh, are the Libertarians crazy, or are they... Do they make sense? Like, what are they all about? Are they right-wing? Are they left-wing? Are they socialists? Are they conservative? Are they capitalists? I wanted to find out. And I asked her basically about every issue on my mind, every issue currently happening from coronavirus to foreign, you know, relations to taxes to whatever. And I don't know. You tell me. Leave me a review. Like, I think she made a lot of sense. I don't really think... The libertarians have a chance, but I think it's important that we all listen to other voices. A democracy is not about one voice, obviously. It's about having multiple voices. And I'm a firm believer that a reasonable society listens to multiple voices and that rational people make decisions. And by rational, I mean you're a good person and you're obviously interested in your own best interests but hopefully if you're a good person your own best interests will overlap with others and the combination between reasonable and rational people and consensus could lead to a good government which is why i'm happy dr jorgensen presidential candidate for the libertarian party came on explained her ideas and beliefs on the various issues All right, well, I am so pleased to have presidential candidate from the Libertarian Party, Dr. Joe Jorgensen, on the podcast. Dr. Jorgensen, I know you've been busy on on your bus tour. Thank you for spending the time to come on the podcast. Oh, great to be here. Thanks so much. And I'm always so intrigued by the Libertarian Party. It's a very different outlook and philosophy than... The other two parties where often I have a hard time pinning down what their exact philosophies are. But, you know, first off, I want to say you've been in the Libertarian Party for a long time. You ran as the national VP candidate in 1996. You've also run for Congress. Uh, How how did you get involved in the Libertarian Party? And what's your goal in in this election? Because unlike Donald Trump and Joseph Biden, I doubt your goal is to win but perhaps you could tell me what your goal is. Well, my goal is to win only because as somebody with a PhD in industrial organizational psychology, I understand that very difficult goals, even impossible goals can be motivating. So I certainly am going after uh, winning. However, you made an interesting statement. You said you, it, it's hard to really understand what the other two parties are for. And, and, and you know clearly what the Libertarian Party was for. When I did join the movement 40 years ago, they used to say, well, the Libertarian Party, we take the best of both worlds. We take the personal freedoms from the left, 
from the Democrats and the economic freedoms from the right, from the Republicans. But now they don't have either. You know, the uh, Democratic Party, a lot of people are surprised to know that even as recently as 2012, both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were against gay marriage. I mean, obviously they're against free speech, and now they're no longer the party of anti-war. They muzzled Tulsi Gabbard, and now they've got Joe Biden, a war hawk up there. So they don't stand what they used to stand for. And then the Republican Party, um, yeah, they no longer believe in the economic freedoms. And even when they have an outsider like Donald Trump come in, and, and let me mention, I can understand why people voted for him because he came in saying, look, I'm a businessman. I know how to balance a budget. Uh, I can do the same thing for, for government that I did for my companies. And he comes in and does the opposite. We've got bigger deficits and more debt. So if even an outsider can't come in and act like a Republican, that pretty much shows there's no hope for the Republican Party. Yeah, you know, it's funny because, and, and I had a conversation also with your VP candidate, Spike Cohen, and he, re I like the phrase he used, he referred to them as the Republicrats. It's almost like all one party. I'm curious, and then I, I do want to get to your election and, and libertarian philosophy and, and your beliefs. What, what do you think is the difference between the Republicans and the Democrats right now? Or is there one? I don't see one. Uh, again, with Trump and Biden, first of all, even the mainstream media is saying, look, we've got two old rich white guys. And I would add the statement who've never had to live under the laws ever. Uh, you know, the, the way our government was designed was to have um, uh, citizen statesmen, politicians, go to Washington for a couple months pass a few laws and then go home and live under them for the rest of the year. And now we've got somebody like Joe Biden who's been passing laws for 40 years and has never lived under a single one of them because now we have Animal Farm all over again. We've got the elite who have their own sense, who have their own laws. And so this is really not what our country was supposed to have. And now we've got, in fact, I've been telling people, hashtag fake debates. We've got two people who both want to make more decisions, both make more of your decisions. They both want to spend more of your money. Neither one wants to bring the troops home. And uh, neither one is for the individual liberty for us to even go outside during a pandemic. So what difference is there? Well, you know, you bring up a lot of great issues. And, and, and particularly on the debate side, you're in their most recent polls, you're running third, obviously after Joe Biden and Donald Trump, but ahead of the Green Party, Howie Hawkins. So the Libertarian Party has always been on the map for voters. I, I believe you're in the ballot on all 50 states, uh, maybe the only other party other than Democrats and Republicans. I'm not sure. Is that is that true? Yeah, in fact, we're the only party other than the Democrats and Republicans who've been on the ballot in all 50 states in back-to-back -back presidential elections. We really are closer to the Democrats and Republicans with ballot access than the other quote-unquote third parties. And the, and the Libertarian Party in 2016 got a significant almost 5 million votes with Gary Johnson uh, and Bill Weld, and that's probably the best result ever. Uh, so uh, again, I'm, I'm hoping you can do just as well. I do think it's so important to have your voice out there. Is there any chance to be on a debate? Well, we hope so. You mentioned Gary Johnson. He got to, well, in order to be on the ballot, or I'm sorry, in order to be on the debate stage, you need to score 15% in the polls. And 
Gary Johnson got to 13.6, which is probably no coincidence because once again, we've got two people who are two parties who are in power. And so what they did was they looked at past elections, you know, looked at Ross Perot, John Anderson, and said, okay, what number could we come up with? that's low enough that it looks reasonable, sounds reasonable, but just high enough that nobody can make it. And they arrive at 15%. And so, of course, Gary Johnson gets 13.6%. Um, so I'm hoping to get to 15%. However, a lot of the uh, polls that they use aren't even including my name in the polls. So I would encourage your viewers, your listeners, to, if you get, even if you're, even if you're not 100% sure, but you think there's a chance you would vote for me, just tell them you're voting for me to get my name up in the polls so that we can have a real alternative on stage. And by the way, once I get on stage, if you don't like what you hear, you don't have to vote for me. But how about let's get me on stage so that people hear a different alternative? Well, let's let's hear about that alternative. And let's start with foreign relations, because I think what well, well, may, maybe first describe overall for people who don't know the kind of libertarian umbrella of philosophy, because I think it's so fascinating and it's a very pure kind of philosophy. So, well, yes, it, it, it is a philosophy, but the good thing about the Libertarian Party, the Libertarian Movement, is that when we first started out, we considered ourselves to be educational. It was our job to go out and explain individual liberty, personal responsibility. But the good thing is, is that the movement has grown. And so now we have educational um, entities out there. We've got Cato, Cato.org. We've got Reason. We've got these other places who can do that. So I'm looking at this as I'm running, you know, in an election and I'm trying to explain to voters how their healthcare costs can go down, how they can have more choice in their lives, and how they can basically have a better life with our policies. And, and I'm trying to talk about policies. And the, my main one is healthcare that right now we hear people say on the other side, we hear them say, well, the free market doesn't work, so guess we're gonna have to go to single payer. Well, I've got news for them. We haven't had a free market healthcare system in almost a century, and that's why we have the problems we have. And when I hear them say we need Medicare for all, what I hear is we need VA hospital for all, and I don't think anybody thinks we need that. It's a monopolistic system that absolutely doesn't work. And if we look at free market systems, such as Singapore or um, the state of Indiana with their uh, employees, we see more of a free market system. And our, I'm seeing, we, we see prices go down, we see quality go up. And the two most free market healthcare fields in our country would be LASIK surgery and cosmetic surgery. Both of those prices go down, quality go up. Well, tell me, what is a free market healthcare system? I don't, because I'm so, I, I don't know. There's I have so many phrases and catchphrases and slogans are thrown at me. I don't really even know what kind of healthcare system we have. <laughs> so what we have right now is a system in which the government plays a huge role. Over 50% of the dollars in the healthcare system go through the government. And when that started happening, when government involvement went up, that's when the prices started skyrocketing. A free market system is one in which the people who provide the good or service have to compete. Now, in a way, you could say we don't have much of a free market system just because our taxes are so high, but you know, forget all of that. If, if you want to buy a computer or you want to buy a car, 
uh, you've got different companies who come up with different solutions, different price points, different models, and then they have to compete against each other. So you, you don't just, let's say it's time to buy a car. You don't just go to the local dealership, the one that's closest to you and say, okay, I want to buy that car. And you ask them what the price is and they say, well, don't worry about it. Your insurance company will pay for it. Uh, we don't know. We don't know what the price is. And so you drive off with your car. Uh, that is what's happening in our healthcare system. Uh, I didn't for about 15 years ago, I didn't have health insurance for a few years, long story. And I needed an MRI, which I was more than willing to pay for. Uh, and, and, but of course I didn't want to pay more than I had to. So I called around trying to find prices. They couldn't even tell me the price. Uh, they were like, well, you'd have to talk to your insurance company. Well, I don't have insurance right now. Well, we don't know how much it costs. You know, like, come on in, get your MRI, and then you'll find out how much it costs. Imagine buying a car like that. So, uh, but in a free market system, you've got people competing for your business. Now, I mentioned Singapore and Indiana. They're not 100% free market. They're just on the way to free market, putting dollars in the hands of the people who just like they're buying a car or computer, they go out with their money, they decide what they want, when they want it, and they get to keep the savings. So what does that, what does that mean? Like what happens in Indiana? I'm, I'm an, an employee of the Indiana system. I go to the hospital, I need um, heart surgery. What, do, what happens? So what happens is, uh, well, it's funny. Um, I, I hope you don't need heart surgery your first year. But yes, in general, what happens is, the uh, state actually gives you dollars and they say, okay, here's a few thousand dollars for smaller medical costs. Let's say, you know, if you buy antibiotics or you need a physical, you're going to pay for it out of your own money. But here, it's money we're giving to you. And they also pay for the insurance. So you go out and you look for the best price. Uh, and it's funny that you mentioned heart surgery, because if you look at costs in our country, Heart surgery costs about one hundred thirty thousand dollars. If you what? go to yes, if you go to Singapore, where people have dollars and they go around, you know, just like when you buy a car, you ask for the price first, and then you decide which place you want to go to. Their heart surgery only costs about eighteen thousand dollars. So overall, and, and that's an extreme, but overall it costs about a third. But let me tell you what happened in the state of Indiana. So, and, and it was uh, voluntary. You could either have the old insurance way where you go with your little copay card and you don't know how much stuff costs, or you could go with the system in which you get money and you get to keep the savings, which is the way life should be. That's the way it is when we buy cars, computers, or even groceries. Or, or when I bought my wife from Russia, that's I knew what I was paying for. <laughs> we won't talk about that. <laughs> um, so, uh, so anyway, in the state of Indiana, before the, the system began, about 10% of the drugs that were bought were generic, which would make sense because you're spending somebody else's money. What do you care how much the drugs cost? However, within just about a year or two, about 90% of the drugs that were bought were generic. And here's the best part. The people were glad to do it because they got to keep the savings. Just like if you shop around for the best gas prices, you get to keep the savings. That's the way it should be. Well, I, I agree. And, and it seems like a lot of policies start with, let's call them good intentions. Like for instance, student loans. Uh, every student 
every person should have a chance for higher education is the good intention. But what ends up happening is, oh, I don't need to worry about, you know, student, 18 year olds don't have a concept about money. I don't need to worry about paying for some rinky dink college. And then tuitions go up faster than inflation every single year because college presidents know the government's paying for it. So what, what would you get rid of? Like day one in the office, what would you get rid of in healthcare? Would you get rid of the FDA, which drives up prices because of, uh, you know, $2 billion worth of testing every drug needs? Well, yes, the FDA would be a good start because you're right. It takes about a billion dollars in 10 years to get the average drug to market. So it's the people who pay the price. In fact, let me mention quickly, when people ask me why I'm running for president, I tell them it's because uh, government is too big, too bossy, too nosy, too intrusive. But the worst part is they usually help or they, they usually hurt the very people they're trying to help. And we see that with the FDA. You know, let's protect people from bad drugs. And what do they do instead? They drive up costs and they put people on a waiting list. So now you can't get any kind of drug. And so, how many drugs were, are probably good, but didn't have a billion dollars? Exactly. And exactly. Or how many drugs are in the pipeline right now? They've only been in the pipeline for six years. You got another four years to wait and you could use it today. But to, to get back to your question about what I would do is um, I think the biggest problem is that our insurance system isn't really insurance at all. So to give the car insurance, to kind of extend this, the car insurance example, what if your car insurance paid for gas, oil, car washes? You know, you would have absolutely no reason to shop around for the lowest gas prices. You just drive into the closest place or the nicest place, whip out your $5 copay, and off you go. And then the gas companies, the gas stations, have absolutely no reason to compete because um, they don't have to because you don't even know what the prices are. In fact, they could raise prices and you wouldn't even know it because the car insurance companies would pay for it. That's what we have right now. So what we can't do is we can't pull the rug out from underneath people. We can't just say, okay, you're on your own because we've got all of these inflated prices because the government dollars have been put in there. So what I would do is start with the VA hospital, which is, you know, been horrible, it, 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 it services horrible for anybody, but especially the people who were willing to risk their lives for our country. And instead of having a VA hospital system, I would actually give, just like the state of Indiana, I would give the VA, I would give the veterans dollars to put in their pockets and they go around and shop for what services they want, when and who gives it to them. And then also the same with Medicare and Medicaid in which uh, by putting the dollars in people's pockets, they go around and shop, just like shopping for the lowest gas prices, and start the prices going down. So that would be the first step. What, what, if, I, what if I have no money and I, I need some medical help? What would happen to me? Well, right now you'd be in the Medicare system, or Medicaid, rather. You'd be in Medicaid. And so instead of saying, okay, here's your Medicaid card, I'd say, okay, here's money in your pocket and real insurance, and now you get to go shop around. So between the money in your pocket and the insurance, uh, now you would have anything paid for that you need to get paid for. And, and on the FDA side, how would you deal with the fact that there might be some scams or bad drugs in the system? Now, by the way, the FDA also has bad drugs in the system. They recall many drugs every year, so it's not clear that that even works. But what would your system do if we were to 
reduce costs and, and, you know, reduce the amount of time it takes to get drugs into the system? Well, first, we need to have a free market system in which if the companies do make mistakes, they go out of business so that if you put a bad drug out there, you have mm. the threat of going bankrupt. But right now, we've got crony capitalism with people in Washington bailing their friends out, giving them money if they make bad business decisions. But, well, there are two things. The FDA originally only had a safety requirement. You only had to prove that your drug was safe, not that it worked. In 1962 is when they added the efficacy requirement. Now you have to prove that your drug does what it's supposed to do, which sounds like a great goal, but the problem with that is that it takes so long to meet those standards. So if all we did was kept the FDA and went back to 1962 standards where you just had to prove your drug was safe, that would help in a whole lot. Because what happened before 1962, if there was a drug that really didn't work, usually doctors and patients discovered that within a few months and usually drugs were gone anyway that didn't work because it didn't work. And people said, this isn't working. We're not going to use it anymore. Sure. Now, and there's been so many medical disasters with people just saying, oh, but the FDA said it's okay, so let's keep taking it. And, you know, oh, they don't yeah. become as careful individually. Exactly. So, you know, as, as a first step, and, and I'm not for, and I think this is part of the reason I got the nomination, is I'm not saying, okay, January 1, we're yanking everything out, we're yanking the rug out from underneath everyone, you're on your own. So with the FDA, I'm more than happy to say, okay, we'll keep the FDA at least for a little while and get rid of the efficacy requirements just to keep the safety. And when everybody sees that the world isn't going to collapse, okay, then you know we can either privatize the FDA, let other companies come out and do that job, or just have it as an advisory where if you are a drug company, you kind of like pay for their stamp of approval. But uh, you could sell drugs without the FDA stamp of approval, and it wouldn't take money out of taxpayers' pockets. The drug companies would have to pay for it. But um, again, if, if we let businesses fail who put out bad drugs, then they're going to have the incentive to do that. And what the government does right now is they get rid of that incentive. Uh, you know, the airline companies, the, you know, uh, Wall Street, they behave recklessly and the government says, oh, no problem. We'll just bail you out. We got to stop that mentality. Well, yeah. And I want to, I want to very much get to economics and, and financial policy, which is verges on what's happening with coronavirus and the, and the lockdowns and so on. I'm just curious first on foreign on on foreign affairs foreign relations so you know libertarians and i very much agree with this are are and correct me if i'm wrong are very much anti-war and i agree with that there's no reason to send 18 year olds to foreign countries to shoot other 18 year olds it seems inhuman to me i i mean in history can you think of a war that if you had ever been president during that time you would have felt justified to send troops to, to war? It's possible um, World War II because we, we were attacked, but not to the degree that we did. And historians point out that, you know what, if, if we hadn't done what we did after World War I, then World War II would have never happened to begin with. So, um, I mean, in general, I, I guess I would have fought against the British uh, in 1776, the free. I wouldn't have. 
Really? You would have yeah. saved King George? Well, what, what was, I mean, we were just, we were essentially do, bailing out a bunch of taxpayers in Boston um, <laughs> to fight the British and the British stopped slavery in 1831. I don't, we would have kind of, we would have eventually gotten independence the way Canada did very peacefully. And so I don't know if I would have fought the British. Um, but this is neither here nor there. What about today? Yeah, what, what, about would you, today? what would you do today? Today, I would bring our troops home and turn America into one giant Switzerland, armed and neutral. That we are in almost 150 different countries, and we spend more money on our military than the next seven countries combined. And there are... Well, I was going to keep going, but it sounded like you wanted to look like you wanted to say something. <laughs> no, no, but please, please keep going because I, I, I want to be convinced. Oh, you want to be convinced? Okay. The guy well, well, uh, okay, so I'll, I'll ask the question, which is that there's always worries. Could we be attacked if we reduce the army? And are there any situations where we really do need to be the police of the world, like in the case of a genocide? And if we fully pull out of the Middle East, where I agree we've, we've messed things up for many, many decades, is there a chance that the, you know, an imbalance could happen? Like Iran, it could just sweep over the entire Middle East uh, where, you know, because they greatly outnumber everyone else. And then there's a problem. Well, to answer your first question, could we be attacked? We were attacked being over there. <laughs> so you look at 9-11. I would suggest that we might not have been attacked um, on 9-11 if we hadn't been over there. Because what Bin Laden did is they used us being over there as a recruiting tool. He said, "Look, Americans are lying to us. They said they we'd be here temporary. They'd be here temporarily. They're not. They give us a date. They're going to be out of here by now, or, and they're not out of there by then. And they're trying to take over our religion. They're trying to take over our laws. And he really got people riled up. Now, could a madman convince people to fly planes into buildings, even if we're not over there? Yes, but it would be a heck of a lot harder." We just made it easier on him because he kept pointing to us being there saying, look, and, and let me let me quickly, you know, disclaimer, nothing justifies that. Absolutely right. nothing. But I'm saying he was able to easier twist it uh, to convince people to do that. And if we had been over here, it would have been a lot harder for him to say, hey, look, they're trying to take over our religion and our land. They'd be like, what are you talking about? They're, you know, they're sitting over there on the other side of the ocean. I, we, you know, we don't see that. And as far as leaving vacuums, yeah, we've left vacuums before. Well, part of the problem is we left our military equipment over there. We said, well, we'll see. And we left our military equipment there for our enemies to get a hold of. But um, so I would, when I would retreat, first of all, I wouldn't forget to take the equipment with me when I left, you know, kind of like, you know, being a kid and leaving and forgetting your toys. No, I'm bringing my toys back with me. You know, this belongs to us. We're not going to leave it in the dangerous hands of others. Um, that was absurd to even do that. And also, um, I would go through a more orderly withdrawal. Now you asked, is there any place where possibly I would stay? I would say the default option is we come home. Is it possible that there's some high secret thing that uh, th that we need to stay in a base here or there? Maybe, um, and, and as president, I would find out, but I would say, again, the default is come home. And especially, you know, two things. One is the cost. You know, why do we need to help support France and Germany with their defense? 
and we keep hearing, oh, isn't France great? They've got like five-week vacations there. Uh, we should have five-week vacations. Well, you know what? Maybe we could have five-week vacations if uh, we weren't paying for their military. <laughs> if they paid for their own military, maybe they'd be the one with, you know, two-week vacations. But secondly, it's the fact that it makes us more vulnerable. And what's ironic is the job of the military is to protect us, is to make us more safe, and it's making us less safe being in, in these places. So I would say look at where we are now. But, but given that we've created so much trouble and we've, we've dug ourselves in into a deep hole, I would say by mistake, would, could we now destroy the balance of power uh, by leaving? Because again, like, you know, there's this huge millennial conflict between the Shia and the Sunni. Could Iran just sweep over all the other countries of the Middle East and, and really damage our, you know, a, a, a connection to the resources there? Well, again, uh, let me quote David Berglund, former presidential candidate, and say utopia is not an option. And I would suggest, is it worse that we stay there? Um, could there be problems when we leave? Yes. But are there problems with us being there now? Absolutely. And I would suggest that we do it in a little more, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be, and, you know, I really think that Trump I really think that he wanted to bring the troops home. And he made the mistake of leaving all of the military industrial complex advisors there mm -hmm. who basically were, um, you know, had their own agenda. I would actually bring in people who wanted peace and who, come, who could come up with a good way to come about this, to do this, as opposed to, um, you know, just having it be wishful thinking. But you're right that we have to be careful in how we do it and we need to do it orderly. But even people who say, yes, we have so many problems who, you know, yes, we have created vacuums, they're saying, yeah, we still need to get out of there. What about uh, in terms of being the world's police? Like, let's take a place where we're not involved, but maybe could, could question it is like Myanmar, where, where there's a genocide happening or, um, you know, there's other situations. But like, that's a small contained situation where we could effectively be a police force on the world. But being the police force always creates other problems. Mm -hmm. Even with the Trump, uh, treaty that Donald Trump is very proud of, and they're saying, oh, it's the best treaty, you know, or it's the only treaty of its kind since 1994 or whatever, still not everybody's happy with it. There are still groups of people over there who think it's completely unfair. So it's, it's a no-win situation. No matter what we do, even if we go in and come up with something that people are her heralding as great, there are still people who are going to be unhappy, which is going to give them reason to attack us. And also, if it is a very small contained situation, I would suggest that the American individuals could help out. You know, what I'm saying is we shouldn't have the American military, the U.S. military act on behalf of the U.S. government. Now, can individuals through... Um, helping privately, sending donations or going over there in a Peace Corps type of situation. Can individuals help? Of course. I would never tell American individuals they can't help you know, their fellow uh, human beings around the world. I'm just suggesting it shouldn't be the American government. What, what about a situation now like... Um you know, switching gears a little like on tariffs. So if we charge no, you know, you're anti-tariff and I agree with that also. Tariffs have been the cause of every major recession and depression, except for this last one. But, uh, you know, if we have no tariffs and China's charging 30% against our goods, how do we deal with that? 
we deal with that by opening up our borders, by saying, you know what, uh, we are we're 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 open for business. We we would like to buy your products, and you may sell your products at at whatever cost that you like, because what people don't realize is that tariffs are basically an invisible tax, and we need to get rid of that invisible tax. And um, it's probably no coincidence that you brought up trading right after talking about the military, because I'm sure you've heard that when goods cross borders, troops don't have to. And I give my own personal story of when in the early 80s, I was driving and uh, pulled into a parking lot, and I had this older gentleman come over towards me with a scowl on his face. And, you know, at first I thought, oh my gosh, I hope I didn't cut him off. You know, I didn't mean to, but he came over and he was glaring at my car. Uh, and he asked me, how dare I buy a car from Italy? Do I not know what they did to us in World War II? Because mm. he was a World War II veteran. And now because he was a veteran, I, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for his, his service. I'm not about to get into an argument or even a debate with him. But what I wanted to tell him was, you know what, as long as we buy cars from Italy, they're not going to bomb us. And in fact, you know, we got into World War II because, uh, because Japan bombed us. And I would suggest that Japan is not going to bomb us now because we buy so many Toyotas and Hondas from them. So, you know, you tend to not bomb your best customers. So we cannot afford to get into a war with China because we're able to blow each other up. And so I would suggest we keep our borders open and become very valuable and become friends with China and lead the way in allowing people to peacefully trade with each other. So are you saying by opening borders, it could lead the open the door towards other countries manufacturing and producing for like really the problem with China is, is that they charge huge tariffs. They peg their dollar to us ours, so their, their goods are always cheaper. And then they overcharge and we're, for, we're, we're captive customers to their, you know, the, it turned out with, with the coronavirus, in, the, there was no plan B in our manufacturing supply chain. Like it was all China. And that's why they were able to control us so much with their tariffs. Like, how, how would a situation like that change? Well, first of all, uh, why did they have manufacturing to begin with? I would suggest part of it is because of our high corporate income tax. And so let's eliminate that so that we get rid of some of the incentive for people to have manufacturing plants around the world. Now, it's not going to get rid of it completely because, of course, cost of living is lower in other places. But as far as, um, you know, we, we can improve the situation. And just, you know, just because China has tariffs from our goods going there, that's actually hurting their people. Uh, it's actually raising the cost of goods for their uh, citizens, not for ours. So I don't see any reason to raise the cost of goods for our citizens just because their citizens have to pay a higher price. No, but they charge a higher price to us that we're forced to pay because there are only, you know. Oh, when, oh, you mean when we buy their stuff? Yes. Well, then uh, if if their if their cost is too high, then other countries will be selling us goods at a lower price. That's what the free market's all about. Is we don't, you know, there, there's no rule book that says we can only buy stuff from China and that we're held hostage to them and we have to buy their higher price goods. You know, let India, let Bangladesh, let. let I, I agree with that, but how come we haven't already started, um, you know, switching, you know, how, how come our corporations haven't already started switching focus to those other countries? 
for buying stuff? Yes. For manufacturing our goods. Well, but, 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 but you keep saying manufacturing and I'm saying buying. Those are two different things. Again, part, you know, part of the reason probably why they're over their manufacturing goods is because the costs are cheaper. But part of that is the U.S. income tax, which, like I said, wouldn't completely get rid of it. But it would help return some because there still is a cost for doing something overseas. So what if we had a corporate income tax of zero and, and companies could maintain, you know, stay in the United States? But also there are other countries that people have moved to for, um, for manufacturing and for buying goods. But, but manufacturing goods is separate from buying goods. So what I'm saying is when we buy goods, let's open up our borders and if China's prices are too high for stuff they're selling, then we buy stuff from other countries. Kind of like, you know, again, you've got three local supermarkets. If the price of one is too high, you don't say, oh, nothing we can do. We have to go pay for higher prices. No, you go to one of the other grocery stores. So the same with countries. If China, if their prices are too high, we buy from somewhere else. So you, you segued into taxes. Let's say, and, and again, I agree with it about uh, 0% corporate income tax. These are institutions that create jobs, create prosperity, create innovation. Not sure why. Pe- people don't really understand that when the government taxes and brings in money, it's not like it goes into an account and then gets dispersed into another account. That money disappears from the economy until it's later spent. And people don't quite understand the economics of that. But what would you do day one with personal income taxes? Well, day one, I would start a plan to get rid of them 100%. Now, on day one, can we just say, okay, no income tax? No, we still have to, again, do it in a somewhat orderly fashion. But no, we need to get rid of the personal income tax. Some people say, well, then what's going to happen to our government? But they don't realize that only about half of our revenues come from personal income tax. So, and you know what? Even if we had money sitting in the bank, we should still cut our spending by half because we're doing way too much. And again, even our military alone is a huge chunk of that. So we're spending all of this extra money being around the world, making us less safe. How about we spend less money and make us more safe? Like, why, why wouldn't you do that? So, uh, so income tax would naturally go down anyway, but the plan is to get it down to zero. And what, what um, departments would you, like this, this, these two questions go hand in hand. What departments or parts of government are currently effective, if any, because I'm, I'm doubtful of any, and, and I'm saying this as just a concerned citizen, not even a, a political advocate on any side, but what, what departments are effective? What departments would you get rid of first to eliminate spending? Yeah, get rid of pretty much any department that's been created in the last 200 years. Just, keep, <laughs> you know, just keep the original couple that we had when the country was founded, like the Department of the Treasury. But uh, no, let's start with the Department of Education. And, you know, education is a local issue. If you look at the needs of the people, you know, the, the needs, wants, and desires of the people in, let's say, rural Appalachia, much different than the needs of the people in downtown New York City, much different than Wyoming or California. So 
why do we have a one-size-fits-all Department of Education in Washington? In fact, if you look at the cost of that bureaucracy, if, um, if we got rid of it, that would be an extra $1,500 to each student that could be paid towards tuition. And the, the scary thing about the Department of Education is that since they've been around for 40 years, not only have scores not gone up, if anything, they've gone down, and education costs even more. So once again, government, you know, they say they're here to help, and every time they try to help, they end up making things worse. So got to get rid of the Department of Education. Is there any chance that if you let things go as local as possible, that some localities could teach things that are very much against the interests of the majority of the people? Wasn't that what they're doing now? <laughs> I would suggest right now. Oh my gosh, I, I heard um, when I went out to Washington State, I talked with a mother who said that what her child was learning in the Seattle public schools was just horrendous. They were putting her child on a guilt trip and they basically had to move just so she could get in a different school district because of, of, of how they were indoctrinating her kids. So I would suggest that through the monopolistic school system we have now, we're getting bad messages. But you know, it's, it's funny that you mentioned this because education is usually the example that I give of why government is just making us so polarized. You know, people ask, well, how come we're, uh, you know, polarized? Why are we at odds with each other? And I would suggest it's because every part of our life goes to the government. So for it, with education, let's say that you want your child to go to a school that has prayer. And let's say your neighbor doesn't. What you have to do is you guys have to battle it out. You each have to support your own candidate, donate money, put out the yard signs, get all your friends to vote for whoever, and then go to the ballot box and vote. And one of you is going to win, the other one's going to lose. And one of you is going to get what you don't want. How about instead we keep our dollars and then, as Milton Friedman said, we vote with our feet, vote with our dollars, in which you can send your kid to a school with prayer and your neighbor can send his kid to a school without prayer, and then you can both be happy. But again, we've got the one-size-fits-all education, healthcare, retirement, Pretty much everything goes to the government. And it's funny because people are so concerned that, oh, you know, Congress, the you know, people in Washington are so corrupt. Well, they were very corrupt in the 1930s and 40s, but people didn't care as much because not every aspect of their lives went through Congress. They had control over their health care and their education. Now it is a problem because people don't have control over their lives anymore. I want to talk for a little bit about coronavirus, not only our response to the virus, but our response economically, because they're, they're kind of linked hand in hand and have created essentially a, a worldwide global disaster emanating from the U.S. But you're president of the United States. You start to hear about this virus coming out of China. What do you do? What do you suggest? What, what happens first? Well, the first thing I do 
is to get rid of the obstacle in the FDA. And that was the first mistake that President Trump made, is, is there was basically an obstacle to testing. There were, you know, dozens of testing kits that could have been sold in the United States, but they were blocked by either the FDA or the CDC from being out there. And then the second thing he did is he stood up on stage with Dr. Fauci and said, only get tested if you have symptoms. Well, even at the time, they knew that a lot of the people had the virus without any symptoms. So what should have been done is everybody should, should have gotten tested like they did in Southeast Asia, in which if, you, if everybody gets tested, then you know who needs to stay home and who can go out and work. And instead, we shut down everybody so that now um, we lose tens of millions of jobs and many of them are not going to come back. They're not going to come back. Many of them are not going to come back or for, at least for a long time. So, which, which then, you know, I've, I've heard you in an interview say that, look, individuals are smart enough to decide whether they're going to go to school, go to work. Many people had to go to work anyway in this current lockdown. You know, there was the essential workers. There were the delivery workers. In New York City, you had everybody in their penthouses clapping at 7 p.m. for the essential workers, which were the delivery workers. And it just felt sort of dis disgusting to me at the time, like people in the penthouses clapping for the people risking themselves on bicycles, delivering pizzas to everyone. But, and I agree, I, a lot of people I knew were, were staying at home even before the lockdowns. People can make decisions. Do you think that is good enough though? Do you think people are, are and I, I'm asking a question I know the answer to, but do you think people are capable of making these decisions as a society? Well, first of all, uh, I, not everybody is going to do exactly the right thing, but let me quickly add that being stupid shouldn't be against the law. But secondly, people look at the alternative as though, well, government's smart enough to make all the decisions, and they're not. And especially with New York, oh my gosh, with Cuomo and um, all the people being put into the nursing homes who... Uh, actually had a higher risk of yeah. COVID. So here we have government making the wrong decision and people were forced to live by it. So not everybody's going to make the best decision. Again, there is no utopia, but let's let people, if they're going to live or die, let's let them live or die based on their own decisions and not being forced into a decision that they don't want from the government. And so, so fast forwarding a few weeks after this, you know, we realized how fragile the economy was. Just a few weeks of economic shutdown and up to 40, 50 million people have, have been furloughed, lost their jobs, uh, are, are applying for unemployment insurance. If the government is telling everybody to stay at home, are, do they do a bailout like what happened and what might happen again? Well, no, because first of all, that money's got to come from somewhere. And, 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 but let me back up. I still don't like the assumption because they need to let people out and work. And uh, yes. a, recent, a recent poll was done, which showed that people have this huge misconception about the virus. It turns out that if you're in your 20s or 30s, you have such a low risk of dying. It's almost zero. You know, there is no reason to keep young people locked up and not let them go to work. Um, no reason at all. 
And so uh, it, it's, it's the older people and the people who have some kind of compromised immunity or some other problem. So, so first of all, we need to get people out there. But whether or not people are out there working, no, because when you hand out those checks, first of all, the money has to come from somewhere. So it's coming from you. And so rather than you sending it to the, sending money to the government and then the government is handing some of the money back to you, but also money back to the big corporations, how about you keep the money and you get to spend the money where you want to. And I know I would rather spend it locally and keep some of these businesses from going out of business. You know, the smaller businesses were a lot harder hurt than the big companies. In fact, some of the big companies posted um, huge sales and they weren't hurt because the government basically shut down other companies and said, okay, well, these stores can stay open. Right, so, they kept market share while the mom and pop stores went out of business. Right. Or even gain market share because right. the stores were closed. Right. And so, so, you know, you say the money um, has to come from somewhere. Let's say we're starting to move towards a, a libertarian uh, view and departments are shut down, militaries uh, limited, money is saved. Maybe we even generate a surplus or at least break even. So no, you know, less deficit. Is there room for borrowing for a country? It's not, it's not the worst thing in the world to take on debt when interest rates are low, but I know you're against any sort of deficit. Um, where, where, do you, where exactly is the, is the right space here? Well, the right space now is not to be borrowing, that's for sure, because we already can't pay back what we've owed, you know, what, what we owe. So, no, we, this is ridiculous to, to keep borrowing. And, you know, kind of along these lines, but back to the other question, because when you borrow, a lot of times the money does go to the government. And research is pretty clear that money left in the hands of businesses create about twice as many jobs as that same money that goes to the government. So why do you want it to go to the government? And the government can't create jobs. Um, it can only take from some and give to another. So how about let's create real jobs out in the private sector where they do some good and we get more jobs. Like wouldn't, you know, do you want a certain number of jobs or do you want twice that number of jobs? I'll take twice that number of jobs. Thank you very much. <laughs> Will, will automation hurt jobs in a way that uh, the government needs to step in? Again, this is an argument that really holds no water. If we go back to the, you know, when the country was first founded, we had so many people working on farms. And then they come up with, you know, we've got the combine. We've got all this automated farm equipment. And people said, oh, my gosh, but now people aren't going to have jobs. Uh, now what are we going to do? Well, now something like what? 2% of our country is in the farming industry. And guess what? We found other jobs for people. So anytime we have automation, it just frees up people for other jobs uh, for industries that we didn't even know we would have. So for instance, uh, I think you mentioned that I was a VP candidate in 1996. Yes. Uh, we didn't have Google or Facebook uh, back then. So we've got these huge industries now, these huge companies that weren't even an imagine, weren't even in people's imagination at the time, uh, creating all these jobs. So if, if we have automation in one area, now we're going to get, now, you know, it's like people still have money to spend. And now instead of spending a higher price because there's 
uh, human labor involved. Now they spend a lower price because it's automated. And now they've got extra money to, you know, go out to restaurants or get massages or whatever. But, um, but to go back to that argument again, uh, when the government doesn't interfere, then we see more of a natural, you know, like, again, nobody's saying, oh, we need to bring back buggy whips, you know, what about all the people who no longer make buggy whips because now we drive cars, you know, those people went on to make cars. So, so given that a large part of the country is getting some form of government services, whether it's welfare, Medicare, Medicaid, student loans, whatever, how do you start dismantling the system so people are still particularly the ones most in need, are still taken care of? Well, I would suggest, again, that the private, uh, that the free market can do a much better job. And the example that I like to give was kind of a famous one back in the early 90s. I don't know if you heard of the story, but the, United, the uh, CEO of United Way in the early 90s spent something like $400,000 on fancy artwork. And keep in mind, that'd be close to about a million dollars today. Right. So um, what happened was donations dried up. People were like, we didn't give you money to spend on fancy artwork. We gave you money to to help those in need, to help, you know, unwed mothers or to, you know, people with mental illness or people with substance abuse, not artwork. And so the United Way had to work really hard to get those donations back because they had to prove that their money was being spent where it should be spent. Now you look at that same money going to the government. If the government has high overhead, oh, well, they just raised taxes. There's absolutely no accountability in the government because that's the nature of it. And we look, we've got, and, and, and this is what drives me crazy. I would love to have a talk with uh, Bill Gates or Oprah, who I, I think they, they both have said, yes, I think the government should tax me more. You know, yes, I should give more money to the government. And yet Oprah started her own school in Africa, right, for girls. And uh, Bill Gates has the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation where they're spending a lot of money. And my question to them is, well, if you think the government can do such a good job of spending money, then why don't you just give that money to the government? Let them let them open up the schools and work on, you know, vaccines or whatever. And and I'm sure the answer is no. They they do think they can do a better job. And and I ask people, okay, if if you got an inheritance, let's say you got ten thousand dollar inheritance. And you decide, well, you know what? I really don't need it. I want to give it to somebody in need. And you look around. You want to give it to a church, you know, maybe a local United Way type uh, charity. And when, when deciding how to best help those in need, are you going to say, yes, I'm going to give this $10,000 to a federal government program? <laughs> no. So, so, but this, this is very interesting. Whether Are there any areas where the government is more capable of running that area than private industry. So, and this is related to, I have two more questions basically. One is if one way to raise money is we can privatize or sell some of the government assets, whether it's highways or dare I say it now in the current debate, uh, the post office or, you know, what, what other assets could, would you think about privatizing that could be run more effectively in private industry? Well, you ask, can anything be done more effectively by the government? My immediate answer would be no. However, I will follow it up with, uh, you know, I think the function of government should be police, courts, and military. Let's have them run those three. Now, 
Do I think that a private industry could run it better? Probably. You know, we hear about $600 hammers in the military. However, I think it's more appropriate that the uh, government run police courts and military. And out of those, the federal government should only be doing some of the courts and the military. Policing needs to be done at the local level. So, uh, and and we would need so few funds to, to run that part. And people would be so much better off. So we should at least head in that direction. What about selling assets to, to raise money? Because that would be a way to pay back the deficit. Well, I, that would also be a way to provide people who are dependent on Social Security because Al Gore lied to us. He said, you know, we have our funds in a lockbox. We don't. Of course not. <laughs> so, I, I, so I would have an immediate opt-out where you could immediately opt out of social security and never pay another penny because, you know, the money's going to get, you know, you're not going to see that money anyway. However, for the people who are dependent upon it, who paid into the system, we have to make that right because they had no choice. Their money was taken before they even saw their paycheck. Uh, now their money, instead of going to a lockbox, was going for stuff it shouldn't have been, like downtown office buildings and other things. So yeah, sell downtown prime real estate, sell vehicles from the military, sell, sell uh, mineral rights, water rights, sell all of these things, and then give the money back to the rightful owners, the people who put money into it, and now they have a safe retirement. Well, do you think like highway, for instance, the, the, the state highway system, do you think that would be in better hands, uh, privatized rather than uh, the government? Because we could sell that for tens of hundreds of billions. Well, the, 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 that should be a local or rather a state issue. And, and it's not just as much the money, it's the power. Mm -hmm. So again, Elizabeth Dole, if you've never heard of her, yeah. um, Transportation you might have heard of secretary under right? someone, Bush. Very good. Excellent. Yes. The wife of Bob Dole, uh, presidential candidate in 96. And a lot of people don't know, especially younger people, uh, back when I went to college, uh, different states had different drinking ages. And so what happened when Elizabeth Dole was transportation secretary, uh, when people paid their money into the federal government, now they've got highway funds. And so then they gave them back to the states. And uh, she basically dangled the money and said, hey, you want your highway money? Uh, you have to raise your drinking age to 21 and then you get your highway money back. Now, we can have an argument over maybe having a higher drinking age is better, okay? Maybe it is, but that shouldn't be the federal government making that choice. It should be each individual state. So again, rather than running money through the federal government, let each state decide how much to spend and at least, and, and how to spend it and where to spend it. And you know what? Maybe the roads will suck, but <laughs> then people will move elsewhere. In fact, it's, it's funny that you bring that up because in South Carolina, our roads do suck. And, uh, and, and, we, and we allocated highway money and then it gets spent on something else, not the highway. But there have been major industries, and I don't know if you know this, but we have a BMW plant and Michelin, North America, all of North America is headquartered uh, where I live in Greenville, South Carolina. And some of these companies are saying, you know what, if you don't fix your roads, we're, we're leaving the state. So if we want to keep the jobs, if we want to keep our standard of living, we're going to have to improve the roads. Now, take that up to the federal level. You know, where's the accountability again? There's not much accountability with the federal government. But each state 
knows it has to be responsive or it's going to lose money, business, tourists, companies, whatever, to other states. So all of this is so reasonable, and I really love everything you're saying. Why do people sometimes say, oh, libertarian, that's like the crazy party? Like, how do you express a better... PR image of the Libertarian Party than what's been expressed in the somehow in the past. I don't know when in the distant past, but somehow. Well, I think I am actually in that what's so exciting is about 75% of our volunteers are from outside the party. And that's pretty unusual for a Libertarian campaign. Usually you've got the candidate, you've got the core group, and then kind of word gets out. But pretty much since week one, the majority of our support has been from outside the party. And I think it's because it is my message, because I'm not going out there giving, um, you know, and, 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 and I hate to say this, but I think in, to some degree it has been how we um, portrayed ourselves. And, and I was just as guilty as anybody else going out there saying, it's my money and it's my body and I can do what I want. And that doesn't um, really tell the voters how we can help their lives. And so I'm going out there explaining, okay, here's how you can have control of your health care instead of people in Washington. Here's how you can have the kind of education you want and show them how we can actually help uh, help this country with our ideas. And, and final, final question, because I know you're busy and I super appreciate the, the time you've spent and, and given the show. Given our current state of affairs, and it's just everything's so polarized, so many decisions have been made for political reasons rather than economic or health reasons. We're in a bad place right now. I mean, for the first time in my, let's say, 18 years as somewhat of a pundit, and a, and a platform, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a path to disaster as opposed to the, by the usual path of optimism, no matter how bad it gets. There is a, a path that could take us to a bad spot. What do you see happening now, uh, no matter who's elected? Oh, well, I am so thrilled that of, of, of the reaction that we saw to government's mishandling of the coronavirus which is that, you know, what I, I, I got to admit, I was beginning to become discouraged that thinking that our American rugged individualism is gone. But when I saw the people in Michigan, for instance, driving around the state house saying, no, this isn't America. You know, we, sh we have the right. This is supposed to be a free country. We have the right to go out and leave our homes. And just to see people reacting to government the way they are, I am so invigorated to know that Americans still realize that we are a free country and we should uh, be able to do what we want. And by the way, let me mention what's so ironic about this is uh, one of my grandfathers immigrated from Sweden and they came here, you know, America, land of the free, home of the brave. They were looking for a better life. They were looking for freedom. And what's so ironic is in Sweden, they were allowed to continue to go shopping, go to schools, uh, go to um, restaurants, whereas we were all under house arrest. And so um, people are realizing, no, this is not America. And I think that this is the beginning of a movement with people realizing, well, you know what, maybe it's not doing such a good job in the rest of, um, you know, the, the, the rest of my life either. And if you look at how, how people are just not happy about Joe Biden, they're not happy 
that Donald Trump didn't come through with his promises. So I would like to mention, if you do like these ideas, to go to joe20.com, that's jo20.com, and to see how we can help create a revolution and to get some real change out there to where you can make your own decisions. Because I suggest that people out there, that every American out there, that you know best what's best for you. It's not the people in Washington. Well, Dr. Joe Jorgensen, presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party, the the third largest party in the United States. Uh, Again, and just four years ago, uh, your party got almost 5 million votes uh, and it's about 3.3% of the vote. I hope you do better. I hope you rise as a, a real voice in, in the conversation for our country and democracy. And once again, I really appreciate you coming on. I hope you can come on again. Uh, thank you so much. Well, thanks. Glad to be here. Have a great day. You too. 